0: I'm actually going to invite a dear friend on stage who's going to, just to get us in the zone of what we're going to be talking about, I'm going to ask uh, one of our youngest, most handsome, and most vibrant church members here. Is that right, Morag? Morag's husband, Ernie. Let's hear it for Ernie. So, I've asked Ernie just to come and tell us, just for a moment... About his experience with what the Bible calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So, after that, we're going to look at the Bible, but go for it, Ernie.
1: Uh, it's uh, going to be very brief, uh, but first, I would just like to read some scriptures. And they're from Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 9 to 13. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for keep on seeking and you will find keep on knocking and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives everyone who seeks finds and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened you fathers if your children ask for a fish do you give them a snake instead or if they ask for an egg do you give them a scorpion of course not So, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, it's it's going to be quite brief. Uh, Morgan and I, the journey we've been on, uh, we were saved in Carabba's Close, which is a mission in the High Street. And... uh, a few months down the line, we uh, felt there was, there was something more that we could receive, and we were quite hungry, and we wanted that. So the Lord was very gracious, because there was a lady, uh, a colleague of mine, who had been baptized in the Spirit, and uh, Morag had a colleague as well, who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and so the lady, uh, a worked beside, she was going to this church. She was in a hotel in a big room. They didn't have a building, but uh, she invited us along. And the first time we went there, the scriptures I've just read, at the end of the meeting, the pastor appealed for uh, those who wanted salvation and those who wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and uh, so we went out and uh, the pastor read the scriptures and he prayed over Morag and immediately she had she was overwhelmed by love for Jesus and she spoke in a heavenly language for about 15 to 20 minutes and it wouldn't stop. And uh, then the pastor uh, prayed for me and nothing happened. <laughs> and so, but we kept going there and for several weeks. And each week it would make the same appeal and it would pray for me and nothing happened but eventually it did happen and so uh both of us have been baptized in the Holy spirit and as that the uh, scripture says it's a gift it's a gift from god and he want i believe that he wants everyone to have it and uh, it's usually achieved by laying on of hands and being prayed for. So, that's where we are on the journey. Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Ernie. Thank you. Thank you, Morag, for leading the way. <laughs> Let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to turn to the Bible and just look a little bit deeper into some of the things that Ernie spoke about there. Uh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, as we take time to really dig into the Bible here on this subject of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I ask you to help me to speak, help us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at the end of this service, what we're going to do is at the end of the service, just like happened in that service that Ernie and Morag attended, we're going to give opportunity for people to be prayed for, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, at that point, I would encourage you run to the front, because I believe God wants to fill or refill people with this Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's an incredible gift that God has got available to you. And leaders, I'm encouraging you just to be ready in your minds for that moment. I want some of the leaders to come to the front and be available to pray for people and be ready to pray for God to touch people's lives. For me, 15 years old, i have been around church growing up I kind of vaguely knew stuff about God. I believed He was there. But for me, there was always a huge disconnect between the power and the reality that I saw in the Bible and the power and the lack of power and reality I saw in the local church that I grew up in. Although it was full of wonderful people, there wasn't much power. I remember one evening I was 15 years old. One of the girls from our school, she had been to South Africa she'd been a total rebel, she'd come back transformed. God had moved into her life, changed her dramatically, and I remember hanging out with her that evening with a few of my friends, and she was telling us about how Jesus had come into her life, and how she'd had this experience that having become a believer in Jesus, she got prayed for, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit and started speaking in this new language. It blew me away. I remember that night being so impacted by this is all real. Everything I've heard growing up, all these stories in the Bible, it's real. And here it's here in front of me for the first time. Not just words, but power, evidence. And I was blown away. That night I went home. a little lane at the back of my house. I took the shortcut through that lane, and I stood in that lane. And that night I made a decision to follow Jesus. Because I was impacted by a Christianity that wasn't just a Christianity that was a theory or like a philosophy, but something that had power and was tangible, and it could actually change people's lives. So, it's that version of Christianity that we believe in. It's these truths that we hold to. We don't believe in just a theory. We believe in the reality of God's power. And my prayer for each of you today is maybe some of you are not yet connected with God, just like I wasn't connected with God. Maybe today you will make the greatest decision ever and put your trust in Jesus who did die and who did rise again and who is alive, and He will be your Savior. It, also today, maybe you're already a believer in Christ, but you've never been baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's my prayer for you today, that that will be your experience, and God will do that in your life. Okay, so without any further ado, let's go to Acts chapter 2. We're in a series looking at the book of Acts. We come to Acts chapter 2 now. We're just going to work way, way through it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent winds came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So, I just want to make it like we're there, okay? They, they, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. I can't do I can't do that one. Uh, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, who's all of them? Well, the chapter before, this is just following Jesus' death and resurrection. He's told His disciples to wait in Jerusalem until this happened. He said, wait, and they were waiting, and they were praying, and then this crowd of people, this crowd of disciples who had seen Jesus die, who had seen Him rise, Jesus had now gone back to heaven. They were left with the commission of sharing this message. Here the Holy Spirit comes to them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one, of, uh, each one heard in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Now, that's like saying, you know, hillbillies, you know, uh, simpletons. Galileans were pretty uneducated folks. And so when they're saying, aren't these Galileans? They were thinking they're not exactly, you know, the, you know, you know they weren't very educated people. So how do they know all these languages? Because they're not educated. How then, how is it then each of us hears them speaking our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh Phygira. Pamphylia and Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring. So, what were they saying in all these languages? Here's what they were saying. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, "What does this mean?" Then some made fun of them, saying, "They've had too much wine." Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowds, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Nothing to do with the fact that they were followers of Jesus or anything like that. It's just purely to do with the fact that it was nine in the morning and were followers of Jesus. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Wow! I mean, who's read those verses before? Awesome stuff, right? Just amazing. So, what we're going to do is we're just going to work through verse by verse, just through those verses, and just just let each bit speak to us. It's loaded, and it's not just loaded with nice thoughts. At the end of this, as I say, we're going to pray for people, and I believe God who is here is going to fill people with His Holy Spirit, just like He did to Ernie and Morag, and just like He did to these awesome folks in the Bible here. So, verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost came, say Pentecost. Okay, the day of Pentecost why the day of Pentecost? Why not the day before the day of Pentecost? Or why not the day after the day of Pentecost? Why did it have to be on the day of Pentecost? Well, there were three annual festivals in the Jewish calendar that all the Jews from the surrounding regions, there were more festivals, but the ones that they gathered for were Pentecost, Passover, and Feast of Tabernacles. And three times in the year, all the Jewish people from the surrounding regions would gather in Jerusalem. Uh, for these festivals. So, this was one of those festivals. So, why was it on this festival, on that day, that God chose for the Holy Spirit to come? Well, one reason is there was an international crowd there. Okay, so people from all these different regions surrounding the area, God wanted to bring them together. And that's highly uh, revealing as to God's agenda, because God's agenda was to touch the worlds from this moment. Okay, why Pentecost? Okay, here's another reason. Pentecost. It, it was an agricultural festival. Uh, it was often called the first Fruits Festival. It was the end of the cereal harvest, and at that moment, the Jews would bring the, uh, a, a part of their crop and present it before the Lord and say, "Thank you God for a great harvest." That's what they would do. In fact, they would take two loaves that were created out of the, the grain and they would present these two loaves before God as a wave offering. I think it's quite symbolic of the Jews and the Gentiles, and this huge harvest of people from all different tribes and languages that were about to come to God, uh, triggered by this day, the day of Pentecost. I think there is a clear link to the harvest of souls, not the harvest of crops, but the harvest of souls that was about to take place on planet earth. But here's another reason. Pentecost, pent, five, in Greek language, Pentecost means 50 or 50th. It literally is 50 days after the day after the Sabbath of the Passover. So, 50 days after Passover, seven weeks after Passover. Why is that significant? Well, the the feasts kind of take you on a journey that spell out the story of salvation. Passover, the Jews remembered Passover because it reminded them of how God rescued them from being slaves in Egypt. Pentecost, 50 days after Passover was what they remembered as the moment when they came to Mount Sinai, and God gave them the Ten Commandments, and they officially became a people. And then tabernacles was them remembering that they went on journeying, wandering through a wilderness, and how God sustained them for those 40 years in the wilderness. So, each, each of the feasts helped them remember the salvation journey that God had taken them on. We were rescued, we were made a people, and we wandered through a wilderness sustained by God. And so they remembered that. And what's the link then? So why Pentecost? Here's why Pentecost. Because Jesus Christ came to rescue us and Jesus died on the Passover. He, he was the ultimate Passover lamb who died to take away the sins of the world. And by the way, you're all sinners. You need a savior. And today, if you haven't got Jesus as your savior, you can be saved. All your sins can be wiped out like, never, like it never happens. Not just the sins you've committed, but the sins you will ever commit. You can be wiped out in one moment as you trust in Jesus the one who died as a sacrifice for you so you could be forgiven and free forever. Rose again, alive today to be your Savior. That's our Passover. 50 days later, just like uh, there was 50 days between escaping Egypt and Mount Sinai, so there was 50 days between uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. Why? Well, just like at Mount Sinai, think about the parallels. What happened at Mount Sinai? God came down, yeah? There was fire on the mountain, and God spoke. Exactly the same sequence of events took place at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. God comes down in power. There was tongues of fire, and God spoke. But this time, the message wasn't law. This time, the message was grace and salvation It's an incredible parallel. God strategically chose Pentecost. Let's read on the verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came a sound like the blowing of a violent wind from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So, what's this? It's interesting. This is one of three signs in this passage referring to the presence of the Holy Spirit. One sign is winds. Another sign is fire and another sign is tongues, okay? Uh, These symbols represented the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But let me just make it really clear. When we think of symbols, there is a danger or temptation that we think of the Holy Spirit as an it, a thing. But the Holy Spirit isn't an it or a thing. The Holy Spirit is none other than God among us. He's God. He's not like the force, like in Star Wars, all right? It's not like the force, or, or in fact, Jehovah's witnesses would refer to the Holy Spirit not as God, but as a force. That's blasphemous. The Holy Spirit is none other than God himself, among us. God moving among us in power. J- Jesus, speaking about the Holy Spirit's presence, he said it this way in John 14:23. Jesus said, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him who's we." Jesus and the Father will come to him and make our abode with him. Isn't that amazing? That's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is a mystery, right? In one sense, we understand him, but in the other sense, is we can't grasp God, but God has eternally been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not three gods, He's one God who's eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is none other than God. I love what Reuben Torrey, who was a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and he wrote a book about the Holy Spirit. I love what he said about this. He says, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mere power or influence, our constant thought will be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we think of Him in a biblical way as a divine person, our thought would rather be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? So why winds? Why is the Holy Spirit symbolized as winds? In the Old Testament, the word Spirit or Holy Spirit, the word Spirit was the Hebrew word ruach. Say ruach. Say, say ruach like a Scottish person. Okay. Wasn't much better than the first time round. Okay. And it, it translates winds or breath okay? In the Greek language, Holy Spirit is the Greek word pneuma. Say pneuma. Okay, you think of pneumatic tires. What are they? They're air-filled tires, okay? So, the same, exactly the same meaning. Pneuma, ruach, Greek or Hebrew, both of them mean breath or winds. So, when we're talking about Holy Spirit, literally, it could translate literally, holy breath or holy winds of God. And, so therefore, for the Holy Spirit to come, it seems completely and wholly appropriate for that to be symbolized, and actually it was a literal sound of a mighty rushing winds. And why did it say there was a violent winds? Why violent? Why not like a little gentle breeze? You know what, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm totally sure about this, but let me say what I think. Why was it a violent winds? I think God was just really excited. I think He was just let me get in there, right? it has been a long time in coming this moment. Yay! Woo! And hey! Right? So, I think God was just so excited about getting in among His people and transforming the world because He could see 2,000 years later, a bunch of nutters like you sitting in a room in Leith and thought, oh yes, let's do this. Okay, I think He was excited. I think He was zealous. I think God was more zealous to be among people than people ever could be to have God among them. God loves being with people. I think it was a violent rushing wind because God was enthusiastic. You ever heard of enthusiasm? Okay, just, just thought I'd made that point. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. It's quite an incredible, incredible verse. The Holy Spirit comes to rest on each of them. Jesus it was predicted about Jesus. John the Baptist spoke of him, and he said this in Matthew 3:11. "He who is coming after me, speaking about Jesus, is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire." Fire throughout the Bible is symbolic of the very presence of God. So we see God appearing in a burning bush we see God coming down in fire on Mount Sinai. We see right through the Bible God appearing in fire. We see in the, in the Jewish temple, there was a candelabra, and that candlestick had flames that were perpetually burning, representing the perpetual presence of God in that temple. Folks, we've become the burning bushes. We've become the candlestick. We've become, the, 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 the picture is this, we are now the presence, we are now the house of God in which the presence of God flickers. We are now the people of God. God, see, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. In the New Testament, God has a people for His temple. God dwells among us. We're, we are the burning brightly present, we are the people in which God burns brightly among. God is among us. There are three categories of religion in this world. You have religions of imitation, where they imitate a leader, like Buddhism. People try and emulate the life of Buddha. And to some degree, Christianity, we want to copy the life of Jesus. But in a, in a very much more significant way, that's not Christianity. You get religions of imitation. You get, The second category of religion is religions of obedience, where you have Judaism and Islam, where you're obeying laws and commands. And to some degree, of of course, we believe in obedience, but really, that isn't the essence of what Christianity is about. But what we come to is the third category, and this is what Christianity is all about: it's indwelling. So it's not about uh, imitation; it's not about obedience; it's about indwelling. Only in Christianity does God come and take up residence in us. It's not us trying to be obedient; it's just letting. That's why it's not called works; it's called fruits. It's actually Jesus living a life through us. It's it's not about us trying to imitate Jesus. It's about letting just Jesus be Jesus through us. It's a very, very different approach. It's a life that flows out from within us by the power of God. The church isn't a community of believers who seeks to live like Jesus. Rather, the church is a community of believers in whom Jesus lives. Verse 4a says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Say all. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. And I believe God wants to do that this morning among you. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you look at the group, group of people. In that group, they were the apostles. And you can understand, okay, those were the guys. They'd spent three years with Jesus. He'd, been, he'd trained them personally. They'd already gone on mission trips. They had all the credentials. You can understand them being filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, the Bible says all of them included in that group were people who you would never have heard of, people who maybe had been on the fringes of the crowd following Jesus, and yet all of them, not just the apostles, but all of them were filled. Isn't that amazing? I love what Jesus said. Just get your head around this. Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there was not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Jesus speaking about John the Baptist, the great prophet who prepared the way for his coming. And yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's a mind boggling thought, right? Somewhere in the world there is the weakest Christian. Right? Maybe in this room, okay? <laughs> if I was to say to you, are you a Christian? you say, Yeah, not a very strong one, okay? Well, somewhere on planet Earth, there is the officially the weakest Christian, the dumbest, the weakest Christian out there, right? And yet, according to Jesus, they're greater than John the Baptist. The great prophet, John the Baptist. Are you serious? The weakest among you, you're greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because you carry perpetually the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. You privileged people. That's what it means to be a believer. We're in a covenant with God. We have God himself Taking up residence in our lives. Wow! I can feel your enthusiasm over this point. I mean, just, it's like waves, honestly. <laughs> Man, you guys, what you like, eh? No, I'm just, just laughing with you. Yeah, I'll just show a round of applause to God for how good that truth is. I think it's amazing. It's amazing. ten days before, Jesus has said to them in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, this is what He told them about. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The word baptized in the Greek language is the Greek word baptizo, which means to submerge or to plunge. Now, when we understand Um, when someone is baptized in water, we've got a a tank here, and at the end of the month, we're doing water baptisms, that when someone's become a believer, we baptize believers fully in water. We don't don't, uh, poo-hoo other churches, but we don't practice infant baptism because the infant hasn't made their own decision. I know the parents are very sincere about what they're doing, but infants haven't made their own decision to follow Jesus, and we we, we see no example in the Bible of where anyone who was baptized who wasn't already a believer, okay? Secondly, the word baptized means to submerge. So, if I say to you, have you been baptized? I'm actually asking you, have you been submerged? So, you can't say, I've been baptized if you're not saying, I have been submerged. So, we believe in believer's baptism. So, we lower them into the water, then we bring them back up again. And th- that same word now is used for the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, in the same way we can be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Now, what's interesting is you go through the book of Acts. That phrase is maybe used once, one or two other places in the book of Acts, but other phrases are used. For example, here it doesn't say baptized in the Holy Spirit. Here it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Later on in Acts, it says the Holy Spirit came upon them. Another place it says they received the Holy Spirit. And another place it says uh, the, 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 the Holy Spirit fell upon them or Came upon them, or they were filled with the Holy Spirit, or they received the Holy Spirit. Different words used to, actually to describe exactly the same thing. So, hey, what's going on? We're ba- are, we, are we baptized into it? Are we filled with it? Do we receive it? Does it come upon us? You know, how's it all happening? A way to illustrate this, you've maybe, maybe seen this before, is if you have a bowl of water here and you have a dry sponge. The dry sponge represents a believer who is, say, thirsty. You've got to be thirsty. Ernie and Morag, before they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they weren't like, yeah, whatever, if you want to do it, God, yeah, come on, yeah. They were, they were saying, oh, man, we're thirsty. We, we know you've got something for us, God. And to be honest, that's, that's more appropriate considering what it cost Jesus to make this gift available to us, okay? That's, it's very appropriate to be deeply thirsty and very grateful. So, dry sponge is like a thirsty believer. And when you baptize that sponge, you submerge it, right? It's, it's it is now, would you now say it's baptized? Yeah, it's baptized. But what's also happened, it's it's what it's been it's been filled. It's received something. Okay, so let's so you, you baptize it and now it's filled. And now what's it doing? What what what's what's happening? What's happening to it now? It's it's what? It's touching everyone, right? It's it's starting to overflow into the lives of people around you. See, so it's it's an incredible example. I'm all wet here. I can't believe how wet I am. So, when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're not just saturated. Are you taking it away from me? Oh, you're looking after me. Thank you so much. Don't give them any. Yeah, you can get yeah, some more of that. Share it around. So, when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are immersed with the Holy Spirit. You're also filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is overflow. There is always an overflow. There is an overflow that touches the lives of others. And that's exactly what you see here in the book of Acts. Question. Are all believers baptized with the Holy Spirit? Get the an answer away. So, is it just because you're a believer, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit? Let me, let me just say to you, this to you might not be a, a controversial point, but for many of my friends who lead other churches in this city, who I'm good friends with, and I've debated this point with them, some of them will believe that baptism with the Holy Spirit is what happens at everyone's conversion. The difficulty we've got Is that is not the pattern that God has given us in the book of Acts. So, let me give you one of many examples we could give you, but here's one of them. The Apostle Paul Paul comes to a place called Ephesus. He finds some believers there. They were believers. They were saved, and yet he asks them, Acts chapter 19 verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I mean, that would be a meaningless question to ask someone if on the point of believing, you automatically were baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's another place when Philip was in Samaria, and a whole lot of people had become believers there. And it says that when the apostles from Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had received the Word of of God, they were Christians, they sent Peter and John. When they came, they prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any one of them. I think it's Acts 9. They were believers, and yet the Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on any of them. So what's going on there? How is that possible? That you can be a believer without being baptized with the Holy Spirit? And here's my point. You might be a believer here. Maybe you were taught that baptism and the Holy Spirit happened at the point of conversion, and maybe that's what you've believed, and therefore you haven't gone looking for anything in addition to what you've already got. But if you were wrong in what you were taught, then you're potentially missing out on the great gift that Ernie described that he and Morag received when they had already become believers. It's like a combi boiler. You can have a combi boiler with no flame in it. If you've got a combi boiler with no little pilot light on, it's just a meaningless piece of machinery. But when that fire comes on on the inside, that little flame, all of a sudden that combi boiler is now alive. It's now purposeful. That's what it's like becoming a Christian. A flame is lit in your soul. You come alive in the deepest area of your life. You go from just being a human being who's existing, maybe even existing and enjoying life, disconnected from God. When you come to God, something comes alive in the inside of you. A flame comes on. But see, when you, you turn the boiler to the on position, it goes from having just a little pilot light to all of a sudden going, <sniffs> anyone ever heard that in a common boiler? <sniffs> and it's like the, it suddenly goes into full flame, and then all of a sudden what happens? It starts changing the atmosphere around it. And that's the picture I want you to have in your mind when we're thinking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that what happens is it goes from being a little pilot light as a believer in your life to all of a sudden full flame. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. I'm really clear on that. It's by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. We can't be even a child of God unless we have the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. There is a difference, and God wants it to be different, and God wants it to be an experience you have. Paul prayed for those believers in Acts 19 and he said to the, this is the people, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they went went on to say, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul went on and it says in verse 6, when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You could say the Holy Spirit is with you to convict, He's in you to convert, and He's on you to empower. You know, there's a story that I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones told about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he gave an illustration to help you understand what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like. Imagine you saw a father and a son walking along the road together, you know, enjoying company of each other and enjoying a good time, chatting away, out enjoying the fresh air. Then all of a sudden, without warning, the father bends down, picks up the son and, embraces his son so tightly and whispers in his ear i love you son you mean the world to me and places him back down and then they keep walking question was he any more the father's son from that point onwards or was he just as much the father's son before that of course he's just as much the father's son but did he feel like the father's son did he know it not just in his in his head but did he really know it in his being I am the Father's Son. Of course He He knew experientially His adoption, and I think that's exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit baptizes you, or Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. It goes from being a theoretical thing to being a very powerful experience, a tangible thing. It goes from being real to being really real in your life. What you find is this, that it says in verse 4b, it says, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, look, notice the two parts of that verse. They began to speak as the Spirit enabled them. There's a human element and there's a divine element. You see that? They spoke. If they had said, not speaking, then guess what? They wouldn't have spoken. Why? Because God, unlike the devil, doesn't come to possess you. He doesn't come to take control of your life. He actually comes to put you back in control of your life. Did you know that? One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is (laughs) self-control. Isn't that incredible? Some people think that when the Holy Spirit comes and really gets a hold of your life, you'll be more out of control. Oh, the Lord's doing it all. You know, you're just being weird, right? It's the Holy Spirit's agenda to actually put you back in control and live a Spirit-empowered life, not an overpowered life or a dominated life. He's not like a dictator, like a demon who wants to possess. He comes as a true gentleman, as the true Lord, and yet he doesn't throw his weight around. He works in partnership with you. It's incredible. They spoke as the Spirit gave utterance. And what will happen at the end of the service when we pray for people is this. You will speak as the Spirit gives utterance. And it was my experience that very, something very sim, similar to Ernie happened for me. And when that moment happens, it was me speaking. But in, a, in the most incredible sense, this was not a language that came from me. What I often encourage people when they're being prayed for, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is I encourage them. Quite often it will happen, that in that moment, you'll get words. And they won't come up here. Like, you see, when you're speaking English. Usually it goes through your brain. I know for some of you, <laughs> doesn't it, that process is skipped and it just comes out. Okay, I understand. You're so spiritual. Okay, but for most of us, it goes through our brain first. We process it and then we articulate the thought. Okay, um, however, when it comes to this moment, these words don't come from here, they come from here. In the, later in the New Testament, Paul says, My spirit prays, even though my mind, mind is unfruitful. It comes from right in here. So what will happen is this words will come from here, not from here. You'll get words coming from here, and then you speak those words that come from here. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Now, questions about about speaking in tongues: Can all believers speak in tongues? Okay, experientially, I would say no. But do I believe it's available to all believers? I believe it is. L- let me let me. Just justify my answer here, and I want you to check these things out in the Bible yourself. There are five moments in the book of Acts that we are given examples of when God chose these moments for us, and there are five moments when people were baptized with the Holy Spirit. In three of those five, it was really clear that they also spoke in tongues. In two of the fives, it doesn't say that they didn't speak in tongues, it just doesn't mention it. But there is enough things around those two to suggest that something certainly happens, even though it doesn't tell you what it was. So, three of the five times, they definitely spoke in tongues. So, even just based on that, three out of five times, the high probability is more possible that you will speak in tongues than you won't. Okay, that's just based on that. But the other two times, I think, I actually think there was speaking in tongues going on there. Furthermore, what you find is this, that speaking in tongues is unique. In that, all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit, healings and miracles, words of knowledge, prophecy, wisdom, discernment, all that, all those great gifts were already in operation in the Old Testament. But as we come into this New Testament era, it was a specific sign given to the church that was very unique, not in the Old Testament at all, but unique for the church. Here's another point why I think I believe it's available to all, is it's a personal gift. All the other gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the benefit of others, Speaking in tongues, according to the Bible, is to build you up unless it's either understood by the person in their native language or interpreted by a spiritual gift into language they can understand. At that point, it's for the benefit of others. But until that point, Paul says, no, just keep it to yourself and use it in your private devotions. In other words, it's a personal edification gift to build you up personally. And therefore, that's another reason I believe is actually a personal gift to you. Also, it's a sign that follows believers. It says in Mark 16, 7, these signs will accompany those who have believed. Uh, anyone, just, just a we survey, anyone here a believer? Okay, you guys could be a church. That's great. So these signs will accompany you. That's a simple Bible, right? These signs will follow the believers. You happen to be believers. So these signs, you can expect to follow you. One of them is, they will speak in new tongues. So, you can expect to see that in your life. Early believers saw speaking in tongues as an initial evidence of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me show you that. Acts chapter 10, verse 45. All the circumcised believers who had come with Peter, that's, that's the Jewish people, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they were hearing them speaking in tongues. How did they know the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out in the Gentiles? For they heard them speaking in tongues. Ah, oh, right, they've got it. For we heard them speaking in tongues. That was they, they for them it was the, if not a, if not the evidence. Question: Do all speak in tongues? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and this might seem to contradict everything else I've just said a moment ago, but let me give you a context. 1 Corinthians 12. He says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And for many people, that verse is their reason why not everyone speaks in tongues. But let me just point something out about that verse. Paul, in those verses in those chapters either side of it, is talking about how you operate in these gifts in a public setting uh, when the church is gathered. And he, he certainly encourages not everyone to speak out loud in tongues, because it, it weird people out, unless it's interpreted. So, he, he's talking about the public-gathered church. And in the context of the public-gathered church, I don't believe everyone should be speaking in tongues because of the public nature of it. However, what do I believe? I do believe that the gift of tongues is available to all And I wouldn't say it this way. I wouldn't say you must speak in tongues. I don't say that. But what I would say is this. You can expect to. I believe it's a gift that's available to you. In fact, here's the truth. The ultimate gift is the Holy Spirit. And He comes with all the gifts. So it's not like, oh yeah, I got that one prophecy or I got this one healing. No, no, you got that one, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes with the ability to heal and to bring words through you and to bring tongues through you. And oh, He's there. And if you've got Him, they're all available to flow through your life. And the Bible encourages you to earnestly desire those gifts. Verses 5 to 11. Now, so this great phenomenon happens, and then it says the crowd gathered. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation unto heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each of them was hearing their own language being spoken. Utterly asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Uh, then how is it each of us here them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phry- I can't say that one, that place and that place, Egypt and other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. The purpose of Pentecosts was that the people of God would be impacted, so that the world could be impacted? Habakkuk uh, tells us the presence of God. It tells us the the purpose of God. Habakkuk two fourteen says, "The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the lo- glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." How entirely do the waters cover the sea? Pretty much entirely, right? There's no, there's no area of the sea that the waters don't cover. The waters have completely covered the sea. In the similar way, in that exact same way, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Leith will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, just as the waters cover the sea. Edinburgh will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, just as the water covers covers the sea. That's always been God's agenda. Nothing less than global impact. That's His agenda. And by His grace, we're part of that. That's why we launch new locations. That's why we believe in outreaching as a church. God's pu- purpose is to go out and be among the people of God. You see, Jesus was present with His disciples when they were as a little group in Israel, but now He is omnipresent through His people around the globe by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the great news about Pentecost. And then it says in verse 11b, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. What was the wonders of God? It was, it, was the, it was the message about all the great things God had done. And the ultimate great thing God has done is what Jesus did on that cross. And here's the point what will the Holy Spirit always do? The Holy Spirit will always draw people's attention to Jesus, always draw people's to, to attention to the gospel. That's, you see, anything that draws attention to the Holy Spirit, ironically, wasn't the Holy Spirit. anything that claims to be, oh, that's so Holy Spirit, and yet it's got all the the focuses on the Holy Spirit, that doesn't reek of the Holy Spirit to me, because the whole agenda of the Holy Spirit is to get people's attention onto the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me, Jesus said. So, here's the message that they heard in their own language— They heard about the Savior who died for them on the cross and rose again, and who was the loving God who created the whole universe and had paid the price for all their sins, and through him they could have a new life, an eternal life, and a relationship with God. What a great message! And that was the message that was being proclaimed through these different languages. Verse 12 it says, Amazed and perplexed, they were asking one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, and they said they have too much wine. Okay, these are the three typical responses, amazement, perplexity, and criticism. Whenever the Holy Spirit's moving, that's always what happens. Some people are amazed, other people are perplexed, other people just are downright critical. When God does something, when a miracle happens, and we've seen miracles happen in the church, we've seen people miraculously healed of diseases or long-term conditions changed in an instant as we prayed, we've done that, we've seen that. God's done great things among us. And there are times where ironically, instead of… you'd think the obvious response would be amazement, and yet some people are perplexed at those things, and some people are downright… they become critical of those things. Paul writes in Ephesians five 18, don't be drunk in wine. Say amen. amen. Say like you mean it. Say amen. amen. For some of you, that's a point you need to hear and memorize this Bible verse. Don't be drunk in wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, Hey, Paul, wh- why did you put those together, right? I mean, seriously? He did it deliberately. Because apparently, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a little bit like being drunk, from Acts chapter 2. Why? Well, because drunk people are bold. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit are bold. Drunk people have no inhibitions. Same with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Drunk people are fearless. Same with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Differences. Well, there are several, (laughs) but there's lots of similarities. And then it says in verses 14 to 20, then Peter stood up with the 11 in front of this huge crowd who had gathered. And he raised his voice and addressed the crowds, fellow Jews and you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you, uh, uh, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below. Blood, fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So Peter stood up and quoted a prophecy from the Old Testament. He had choice of many, many prophecies which predicted this happening. He had the choice of many, many prophecies that predicted the coming of the Holy Spirit following the death and resurrection of the Christ. He chose Joel. And the the prophecy from Joel challenged completely many Jewish people's mindset, because to the Jewish person's mindset, God operated among Jewish people. But this prophecy said that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, that radically changed and transformed and challenged the Jewish mindset. Furthermore, this prophecy said it wouldn't, it wouldn't just be on the select few, like the prophets, the select few prophets would become the prophets to the nation. They, they had an understanding of the occasional person standing out from the crowd as a prophet to the nation. But all of a sudden, this prophecy was saying that the Holy Spirit's going to come on all people, and you're going to have prophecies and people speaking in tongues and doing great things and it's not going to be the select few, it's going to be all. And furthermore, it's the, your sons and daughters, so it's not just male-only leadership, it's going to be the, the women are going to be flowing with the gifts, just like the men are flowing with the gifts, that people are going to be stepping at the Holy Spirit, is going to be upon people and anointing people to see great things happen. And notice it says, and they will prophesy. Now, we've just seen the bit earlier and they spoke in tongues, but let me just make this clear, there is no contradiction Prophecy is just simply speaking the words of God in a language that people understand. Speaking in tongues is speaking a, the words of God in a language that maybe people don't understand. It's still, it's still all prophecy. It just so happens you understand one, you don't understand the other, unless it's interpreted or it is your language. And notice that this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit will end at a point. It says, until the great and glorious day of the Lord, this era in which the Holy Spirit's been poured out will conclude at the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, cessationists who believe that these gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer around today, we agree with the cessationists that a day will come where the gifts will come to an end. We agree with them. However, we disagree at the time scale. They believe they came to an end after that first century of believers. We believe according to the Bible, that these gifts come to an end. Well, let me me put it this way. When do you think people aren't going to need healed? When do you think people aren't going to need evangelized? When do you think we don't need power to be witnesses? When will that moment come? These gifts are around until the job is done. Who are we today to say, Oh, we don't need power. I mean, the guys, I mean, those guys, those 12, yeah. they needed power. Yeah, but us 2,000 years later, we don't really need power. I mean, who are we to say that? Of all times, with the size of this population, with our human frailties, with our own limitations, of all times, do we need the power of God? Absolutely, we need the power of God. So let me just end with this. When I was 15 years old, I became a believer. After, after becoming a believer, about six months after. I didn't, I wasn't in a church that talked about these things. I, I didn't, I wasn't in a charismatic church that spoke about speaking in tongues or all. I didn't, this was not my frame of reference. But some of these verses I read to you, I read. And I remember one night going across to my friend's house, so moved by the verses I was seeing. I was like a dry sponge. I was thirsty. Say thirsty. And I figured, I don't, I don't, I'm not just here to tick over as a believer. I want to see the that same experience that the early believers had. And God, I would like my life to be as effective in bringing you glory on this earth as those early believers. And I went across to my friend's house. I think I'd just turned 16. He was about 17 years old. And we didn't have a clue what we were doing, really. I got on my knees in his bedroom and he just prayed a simple prayer. He placed his hands on my head and he prayed, Father, I pray you'd fill Peter with your Holy Spirit. That's all he prayed. Next thing I know is I just became aware of the presence of God. Now, we know he's always there, right? But you know, when you really know he's there, anyone had that? Okay, so, wow, I know he's here, but I really know he's here now. I became very aware of the presence of God. And all I know is that something happened about here, and next thing I know, I'm speaking a language as if it's it's just as naturally as I'm, probably more naturally than I'm speaking to you here. Just started speaking this language, and it came out as a whisper, just a quiet whisper to the point where my friend thought i was having a laugh i wasn't having a laugh he it 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 honestly didn't and that, that night i went home and just lay in my bed just before going to sleep and I just i started speaking a bit louder in this language that and but the most important thing wasn't the language don't get distracted with the outward thing don't get distracted the big thing is him i had this experience with him and ever since then by god's grace he's given me this prayer language that i can use in prayer so how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Number one, believe. Say believe. Believe the promise of God. It wasn't just a nice thought that Peter quotes from Joel. It was a promise. God says in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Jesus said, described the coming of the Holy Spirit as the promise of the Father. Now, you can trust promises, but especially when the promises have come from God. If God makes a promise, you can really trust that promise. So, see in a minute or two when we ask for the Holy Spirit to come, you don't have to twist God's arm up behind His back here. You can ask with great confidence. You can believe the promise. Secondly, on the result of believing the promise, you ask. Ernie read the verse earlier. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give your Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, you, you don't need to be worried about getting the wrong thing here. You ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, guess what the Father's going to give you? The Holy Spirit. So, you believe the promise, you ask the Father. Thirdly, you get someone to lay hands on you. Where would we get someone like that? Okay, well, Leaders, leaders, wave your hands in the air. Leaders, any leaders here? Okay. There's more leaders than that here. Leaders, come on, looking for some hands. Okay, some leaders, some leaders here, and some leaders here, and some leaders up here who didn't put their hands up. You've got hands, uh, so this is great. We can do this now. And they're going to be here at the front, and they'll be ready just to place hands in you and ask for the Father to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then, fourthly, and this is really important. Receive, say receive. There comes a moment where you stop asking. I sometimes pray for people who are wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're really intense, like this. Please, God, please, please. He's promised. He has promised. I believe in persevering prayer. Okay, but He has promised. And yeah, please, oh, please. And there comes a moment where you got to stop saying please, and you got to start saying oh, thank you, thank you. You to start receiving. Okay, so imagine I was to give you a gift. I would have this gift. I Taffy, come here. You can help illustrate this phenomenal illustration we're going to do here. So I've got this gift. Tens of gifts. Right? So I've got this gift and give it to Taffy. What do you do? You. You, you say thank you and you put your hands out and receive it. Okay, and then you, it's yours. Okay, so what did Taffy do there? Very skillfully, she said, "Thank you." and she reached out her arms, and she received it. Now, when we're receiving a gift from God, the difficulty is we don't have arms for that kind of stuff, but the arms we reach out to with God is called faith. So, even though you can't physically reach out and hold of this gift, you reach out in faith. You say, thank you, and you receive this gift that God has promised He'll give you. Thank you to So you you say, thank you. You receive this gift from him. And remember what I said earlier? In that moment, I, I expect, and you can expect, just like have a biblical expectation. Just like this example. And if you were to go through the other examples in the book of Acts, you would have this expectation that, hmm, likelihood is, I might well speak in tongues. And in that moment, you will find words coming, not from here, but from here. And that same experience they had, you will have. So we're going to pray. We're going to seek God. We're going to ask Him to meet with us. Let's close our eyes. Let's just come into the presence of the Lord. Let's focus on Him who is among us. Now, here's the the real thing. I, I want each one of us to experience God just now. If you're a believer here today... I want you to, in your heart of hearts, reach out to the Father. The Bible says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just the super spiritual 12. It was all of them. And you need to understand that God has got this promise for every one of you. You might think, oh, but Peter, you have no idea how messed up I am. You especially need it. God would be delighted to come and fill you. He has no problem being among the mess of our lives and working things out. Why are you trying to fix it without him? God wants to come and be in your life and help you. But maybe you're here today and maybe yet you're not yet a, a believer. Maybe you've never crossed that line in your heart and made that decision where, okay, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus, the one who died for me and rose again. So for you, I guess, your moment of meeting God isn't so much about primarily being filled with the Holy Spirit. I guess your big moment of meeting God for you is putting your trust in Jesus for the first time. So let me just start there for your sake. If you're here today and you haven't yet properly put your faith in Jesus who died for you and rose again, he loves you more than you will ever be able to comprehend. And he's alive, risen from the dead. He's here just now by his spirit. He wants to be part of your life not just part of your life. He wants to take first place in your life. If that's you, just, just just now, I want you to reach out to him. Let me help you do that. If that's you and you want to put your trust in Jesus today, I invite you to pray this prayer with me, just under your breath, one line at a time. Just repeat after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Jesus, thank you. You were willing to die on the cross so that I could be forgiven and have a whole new relationship with God. Today I commit my life to you. I put my trust in you. And I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive right now. Jesus, be Lord of my life from this day forward. Thanks for hearing my prayer. And for accepting me as your child.